I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. He came to me and asked, you know, he's like, I want to ask your mom to marry me. Would you be okay with that? And at that point, I was a young adult, you know, I was 25, 26. So I said, I would love that. My mom moved uh, to back to Texas. She left me in California. I mean, just seeing them together. I mean, they were literally like all over each other. <laughs> so I was like, you know, get a room already, you know. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. we need help with new beginnings. We may have the courage to move on to a new experience, but we need support. We need a guide, a doula, if you will. When I need a hand, I often get it from my sister, Brett, or from my close friends. Today's story is about a woman who found inspiration for her new beginning in the most natural place, from her mom, who showed her how to keep your heart open to new love, even when it seems overwhelming. My name is Letitia. I live in Los Angeles. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm 49 years old, and I am on my second career as a nurse. When Letitia entered adulthood and started thinking about love, she imagined finding someone like her dad. She'd lost him to complications from an illness when she was just 16. They'd been close. He did sports practices and handled school. She recognized what made him a good partner to her mom. So that's what she hoped for herself, too. Someone that was savvy with money, but that was not too outspoken. Someone, because my dad was kind of meek and quiet. He was very smart, but he was very quiet about it. Someone who's going to, you know, love me unconditionally, who's going to take care of me, who's going to partner with me, who's going to want to travel with me. Letitia has one serious relationship toward the end of high school. It's serious enough that the guy actually proposes. And I, I, I had to say no, because I'm like, I'm 18. I don't even know who I am yet. You don't know who you are. I don't know if I'm going to like you in a year. I just lost my dad at that point. I'm making new friends in college. I just, it's not that I don't want to be tied down, but it's like, I'm trying to find out who I am right now. Like, who am I without my dad right now? She doesn't date much in college. She's working two jobs and has other priorities. Letitia then moves from L.A. to San Francisco, and at 25, she starts to date around a little. At the time, Letitia is working in advertising. One day at the office, she meets Larry. He's the new guy. I had already been there maybe about a year, and then he started, and he literally was in the office next to me. And I heard him on the phone, and he was talking about L.A., and I was just like, hey, are you from L.A.? He's like, yeah, I'm from L.A. And I was like, oh, I'm from L.A. too. So we kind of had that in common. And I said, well, what are you 
doing here if, you know, if your family's in L.A. Larry explains he'd moved from Virginia to San Francisco to be closer to his two sons, who live in L.A. with their mother. It was the nearest job he could find to them, only an hour flight instead of across the country. So from there, we were working on some projects together, and we were just kind of hanging out. He was new to the area, so I was just kind of like, hey, I heard that this place seems kind of fun. Do you want to go and check it out? I've never been. He's like, yeah. So we were just kind of hanging out as friends, and he lived not maybe less than a mile from me. Can you describe him like you found him attractive? Like, what was what was his whole thing? He was kind of quiet, kind of like my dad was. He was funny, but not like, laugh out loud funny, but just kind of like witty in some of the things that he would say. I don't know. I just, I like that we had this kind of like friendship that turned into something else. Like it, it felt like a really solid friendship where, you know, we were hanging out, we were going to places, we were exploring the whole Bay Area together. I felt like I could really be myself around him. I didn't have to pretend. It was just like, this is, this is who I am. You know, do you want to hang out? And we would just hang out and we just had fun. Do you remember when it shifted from friendship to more? Like, how that went down. Yes, actually, I do remember the exact moment. He was staying at, like, temporary housing. And I dropped him off one night after we were hanging out during the day. And he went to give me a hug in the car. And I thought I felt him kiss my shoulder. (laughs) So, and I was like, at first I didn't say anything. But I was like, did he just kiss my shoulder? I was like, I think he kissed my shoulder. I was like, what what man friend is going to kiss your shoulder? So I was like, I think he, like likes me, likes me. So of course, from there, I I asked him, I was just like, hey, when we were hugging, did you, was there like a little something extra that happened there? And he was like, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I like you. For those listeners keeping track, yes, you will notice that this is the second meaningful, emotionally loaded shoulder kiss we've heard about this season. It definitely seems like a trend. Anyway, Letitia and Larry move from friendship to being a couple. But life soon poses some big questions for their relationship. So we were in Oakland at the time. And I kind of always knew that Oakland was a pit stop for him. He was, you know, he was trying to get back to L.A. And he ended up getting a job down in L.A. And he asked me, he was like, how would you feel about moving down to L.A. with me? And I was like, you know, I would, at the time, you know, Northern California was so ex- much more expensive than Southern California. So I was, even though I was making good money, I was still struggling. And I was like, you know, I think, I think I'm ready. With a move, the relationship enters a more serious phase. I had met his kids. I'd even met his ex-wife because it's like, I'm going to be in the kid's life. I need to know the family. I had met his entire family, oh, you know, over different holidays. So it, it just kind of progressed where it's like, yeah, you meet the parents, you meet the families, and then it goes from there. Moving to L.A. together is a big enough deal. But then the stakes get even higher. So I literally, the last day of work before I'm about to move down to L.A., I've got my entire apartment packed up and everything, moving company coming the next morning. I hadn't been feeling well for about a month. And one of my coworkers was just like, you're probably pregnant. And I was just like, yeah, I don't think so. I just probably ate something really bad. She's like, for three weeks. And I'm just like, it could be for three weeks. I was just trying to work its way out of my system. And I did a test and it was pregnant. 
I called Larry. I had him pin. They're like, he's in a meeting. And I was just like, no, you need to get him out of that meeting right now because I just peed on a stick. And this is what this thing is saying. So, um, you know, I called him. I was, you know, I was panicked. He had already had two sons and he made it very clear that he did not want any more children. So I was like, okay, this is either the beginning of the end or the beginning of something new for both of us, a new experience for both of us. And so I ended up just moving down there. And we had a, a lot of very tearful nights about like, you know, what this means because he already had children. So he knew what raising children entails. I had no clue. I wasn't actually planning on having children. And we just kind of had a discussion about like, do we want to do this? And we said, we absolutely want to do this. I hadn't even thought about it, but I'm like, you know, maybe this is this is the one baby I'm meant to have. Then he was like, you know, this could actually be good for my boys as well because, you know, they grew up to kind of together and this, you know, this might help like connect the two families. So at some point there was a feeling of being psyched about this and yeah but at, at initially no initially you know, terrified uh, I know I was I was terrified he kept saying like you know this is not just a pregnancy he's like this is a life Larry moves to LA first in 2002 Letitia joins him in February of 2003 when she's three months pregnant they tell Larry's two sons about the pregnancy not long before the due date and initially they were freaked out they couldn't understand. It's like, well, you guys are living together and you're not married and now you're going to have a baby. So they didn't really understand. It's funny because now as adults, they, they get it. But it's like back then as teenagers, they were 14 and 16 at the time. It was very, very awkward at first. And so I remember dropping them off at school one morning and I was visibly showing and they were they kind of started to ask questions like, well, what does it feel like when it's kicking? Hmm. Like, what kind of name, like, what name are you going to consider for him? Is it going to be like one of those kind of like eclectic names or is it going to be one of those like unisex names? You know, so they started kind of asking questions. Their son, Quincy, is born that September. Larry's other son's names start with R and S. So this makes it QRS. Letitia and Larry find their domestic rhythm. Once he was here... His brothers really embraced like, okay, it's another boy. Like we can teach him this. We can teach him how to hit a baseball. We can teach him how to throw a football. You know, like they were like, this is a kid that we can mold and shape. You know, he's part of our lives, you know. For Letitia, all of this comes together unexpectedly, but beautifully. We had moved into the house that I actually grew up in. So we were, you know, kind of just working on the house and doing all of that and just living there, you know, we had a backyard and we would have friends over. So we had this really, really great life. Now we had some, you know, some ups and downs as most couples do with, you know, the money and working and schedules and all of that. So we had a lot of that, but for the most part, we were, we were pretty happy. And then in 2012, Larry gets sick with a virus. He went to the doctor and then two weeks later he was at home and he wasn't, he still wasn't feeling well. And, you know, uh, my son and I were kind of just looking at him and, you know, it seems like, okay, he's not getting any better, but we didn't really think it was serious. And I don't know if that was like denial. So uh, I took my son up, up north for like spring break and then we came back and he still kind of, you know, looked like he wasn't feeling any better. And so we're, you know, we're just kind of like, what's, you know, what's going on? So he actually called 911 and checked himself into the hospital. And that's when, um, that's when they diagnosed him with this condition. 
The virus triggers a serious bleeding condition, Letitia says. At first it was treatable, but then they, they realized it was, it was something more than just this, this bleeding, clotting thing. There's something else going on, something underlying, but they couldn't figure out what it was. And by the time they figured out what it was, we had a meeting with his three sisters, or I'm sorry, four sisters. And the doctors asked, like, well, this is serious. His liver has failed. His kidneys are failing. The really only organ that's still functioning is his heart. Uh, what do you want to do if his heart gives out? But we're still, we made this decision not to, you know, not to revive him if his heart gives out. His sons had come out from where they were living and everything. So everybody was as a family together, but we still were not thinking that he was going to die. He didn't want our son to see him in the hospital. So I wasn't on board with that. And so I talked to him again and I said, what if I bring him tomorrow? But by then, he was, he was already, like, he'd already lost consciousness. So I was going to take my son anyway and just have him, just sit with him and, like, hold his hand and just talk to him or whatnot. And before I had a chance to do that, he died that morning. I'm so sorry. Uh, that's okay. And it just must have been so confusing for your son. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was eight at the time. He did have his two older brothers um, were staying with us. So he had, you know, them as support. But I just remember when I got the, um, sorry. It's okay. Uh, Sorry. When when I got the call, I just, I ran into my son's room and, or actually I ran into his older brother's room and I said, your, your dad. And he's like, what? And I said, oh, your, your dad died. And I said, I don't know what to tell Quincy. And, you know, he's like, it's okay. We'll do, you know, we'll do it together. So we called his other brother. He came. And so we went and, and told Quincy. And I, it's just, it was so surreal because I don't remember. I, I don't remember what I said to him. I don't, re- I just, I don't remember. It was, it was kind of like an out-of-body experience. Like, I just, I, re- I re- like, I remember the doctor telling me that. And then I was like, I had to call his sisters and it's like every, and then everybody that I told was in such shock that it was like, nobody knew what to say. Nobody knew what to say to console each other because we were just so shocked. We were also shocked. Letitia is 40 years old when Larry dies. In this moment of isolation, of loss, of confusion, she needs help. And there's one person uniquely suited to provide it. Letitia's mom, Betty, is not only a parent who wants to care for her daughter, but she's been through this. Betty lost her husband when she was 55, and Letitia was a teen. She actually came out the morning, like a couple hours after he had already died. And I remember just, she was, you know, sitting in the car with me, and she was just like, I know what you're going through. She just fully wanted to just take on my burden. Like she knew exactly what I was going through. She knew all the phone calls that you're going to have to make, all the arrangements that you're going to have to make, exactly what I was going to need in the future, you know. So she had kind of already like mapped out a, a plan for me of like how to how to get through this. One of Letitia's big questions is, will I ever find joy again? I was driving somewhere and one of my favorite songs, I don't even know what it was, came on the radio. And I used to just, I just remember, you know, it's one of those songs where you just like sing at the top of your lungs and, you know, you're bopping in the car. And then I remember hearing that song and I was like, wow. 
am I ever gonna bop or sing or dance to a song again, like my favorite song? Am I ever gonna get to that point? It was just like, how, like how, how could this have happened? How could this have happened? How could this have happened to my son? Letitia's story continues when we come back. We're back. So there's a reason that Letitia's mom, Betty, shows up like an expert, ready to guide Letitia in this journey of grief and living. I mentioned at the start of the episode that Letitia lost her dad when she was 16. He got sick when she was around 12, with a circulation problem and eventually COPD. So her mother had been in this exact position, a young widow with a child, facing a scary future. Now, thinking back, Letitia remembers seeing her mom push forward during that time, day by day. She was sad, but she's she was a tiny little woman, but she was very strong. And I feel like she was trying to stay strong for me, because if something like this happens, you just, you have to kind of persevere and you ha- you have to get through it. It's like, you can't just have you can't just wear black all the time and just stay in the house and be sad all the time. You know, life is going to move on. It moves on for everybody else. It's going to have to move on for us, too, whatever that looks like. Letitia saw that her mother was not afraid to open up her doors to the community, to let people help them. Well, we had lived in that house for uh, about 15 years. So we had a lot of really great neighbors that, you know, came and brought us food, Uh, I was an avid swimmer. I was on a swim team. So that was, I would say that was probably at least half of the community that came and rallied around us. We had family that came out from Texas. We had, you know, a plethora of friends from all the different sports that I'd played, you know, that were surrounding us as well. And then my mom, she was at her job for almost 30 years. So she had, that was a huge community that came out as well. I mean, we're, you know, I'm still friends with all those people. With support came more space and time for Betty to move on to not be defined by this tragedy. I don't recall thinking, oh, you know, my mom's going to be single for the rest of her life. Like, I'm pretty sure she's, you know, very outgoing, outspoken, very friendly. She loves everybody. She's a very people person. So I felt like at some point she's going to meet somebody. Betty did, in fact, meet someone again and had a deeply meaningful relationship for three years. But then she suffered another devastating loss when that boyfriend died suddenly. It would have been so easy for Betty at that point to say, never again, I'm done trying to find love. But she didn't feel that way. Even after two losses, she remained open to love. And then she found it in a surprisingly familiar place. In high school, before she met my dad, she was going out with this man named Thomas. And when they graduated high school, Thomas went off to the service and my mom was like, well, you know, I don't know if I can wait for you because I want to do, you know, I want to go to college and I want to move to California and all this stuff. Seven years after Betty's second love died, she was 64 years old and back in Texas helping her family. One day she was asking an old friend what happened to people from their childhood. She wanted to ask about Thomas, but she was scared. So she took a chance and decided, you know, what happened to Thomas? And he's like, oh, he just works around the corner at the golf course. Do you want to go see him? So he took her over to go see Thomas and they 
reconnected. Hadn't seen each other in 40 years. What did she tell you she thought of him when she saw him after all that time? She said he looked exactly the same that he did in high school. He was a, like a tiny little man. He's probably about 5'8", like 110 pounds. It was like nothing had, like time had not passed at all. It was like he saw her, she was the same. He was enamored by her just like he was in high school. She saw him and she was like, oh my gosh. They were just picked up right where they left off 40 years ago. Two years later is when Thomas asked Letitia for her mother's hand. Letitia, who was so thrilled for her mom, said yes. Betty moves to be with Thomas. So they ended up getting married in Texas. I gave her away at her wedding. She got married in the same church where she married my dad, actually. And they were, you know, they they traveled together. He loved to fish. She would go fishing with him. She would go to the golf course and bring him lunch, and they'd have lunch together. So it was just really happy to see her have, just have a companion, you know, just have someone to grow old with. And this brings us back to Letitia's story. As Letitia deals with these very nonlinear stages of grief, after losing her partner Larry, her mom's process and happy ending are in Letitia's mind. Letitia, now a 40-year-old widow, begins to follow her mom's example. She lets the community in. They were like, what do you need? What does Quincy need? You know, and I was like, he's going to need some dress shoes for the service. And they're just like, great, what size? What can I get? Like, they were just so like, what can I do? What can I get you? What What do you need? She allows herself to grieve and to get help when she's overwhelmed. I mean, I had a lot of, um, I would say grief counseling, and they call it like a grief tsunami, when you'll just see something that reminds you of that person and you just uncontrollably are just crying for no reason. Well, a reason, you know, you get triggered by something. So, you know, that was definitely happening. But at the same time, you know, life was moving on. You know, I still had a job. I still had a household to support. She also has a son who needs to hear about his dad. And she takes that seriously. Just, is he going to turn out okay? You know, because I know what it's like to lose a dad, but I was... Twice his age. I was 16. I was nearly an adult. I was more mature. My biggest thing, and I still worry about this, I'm like, is he going to get to a point where he doesn't even remember his dad? Because I remember all of their memories together. But at some point, that's going to fade for him. It takes time. But Letitia eventually starts to let herself think about her romantic life. Because she remembers how she felt about her own mom finding love and happiness. She was thrilled for her. She embraced her mom's new beginnings. Letitia tries dating someone again around 2014, a few years after losing Larry. It's a long-distance setup that isn't quite right. So uh, after that, my friends kind of rallied around me, and they're like, well, maybe you need to try, you know, online dating. So I tried it, and I dated a, a few guys. I met one. It didn't last all that long, but it was another where he was very honest with me after Three months, he came to me and he said, you know, I don't really feel like this is progressing from like to love. And I'm like, well, after three months, is it actually, I don't even know if I really like you, but you know, if you, if it's supposed to be moving to love for you and it hasn't happened, then maybe I'm not the person for you. You know, I appreciate your honesty. That same week is when I met Jeff, my current boyfriend. 
So tell me what happens. I was out with a friend from nursing school who's also a single mom. And she's like, you know, we don't have class on Friday. So Thursday nights, we should go out. My friend's playing at this bar over in West Hollywood. Let's go. And I'm like, uh, okay. (laughs) So I go. And on the very first night that we're there, he's taking pictures of the band. So I went to go close out our tab and he came over to the bar and I noticed his camera and my son had just gotten into photography. And I said, oh, I like your camera. I just bought one for my son. Can you, you know, can you tell me if this is like a, a good starter camera? So I showed it to him. And he said, oh, that's a that's a great starter camera. He's like, oh, it's got this, it's got this feature, it's got that feature. He's like, by the way, my name is Jeff. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Tish. He's just like, oh, give me your, you know, your Facebook information. So we chatted on Facebook and I told him, I was honest. I said, look, I'm in this other thing, but I could kind of feel like it's it's at the beginning of the end. So, you know, I said, well, we can just, you know, chat for now, but I am kind of, you know, in this thing. And I wanted to be honest with him. It was a very just like organic conversation. It wasn't like I'm picking you up or you're picking me up. When Letitia's other relationship officially ends, Jeff says, hey, now can we hang out? And I said, well, I can, but you know, I've, I've been dumped twice this year. And I mean, like, honestly, honestly dumped, you know, but I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm a little salty. I'm like, I kind of just need a break for just a, just a couple weeks, you know? And he's like, okay, just, you know, well, can we just keep talking? And I'm like, sure, we can keep talking. So we just kept chatting over Facebook. And we went on our first date probably about a month later. And um, it was almost the same kind of shoulder kiss, but it was like an actual kiss. <laughs> but it was kind of that, you know, like that first moment where it's like you're kind of like awkward and you're not really sure, like, is this a friend thing or a romantic thing? But yeah, it turned out to be a romantic thing. We were kind of just like, kind of just like seeing each other, but kind of like seeing each other consistently for like, you know, maybe three months or so. Um, Then we kind of, you know, made it official. Like, I'm not seeing anyone else. You're not seeing anyone else. Let's do this. Jeff is patient, knowing that date nights require childcare and a lot of planning. There's no other parent in the picture, and Quincy's only about 13 at this point. Letitia has help from friends from nursing school and beyond. How long did it take until you felt comfortable introducing him to your son? It was a long time. It was almost a year. Jeff knew about my son. He knew all about like his interest in photography. He was giving me books to give to him, but without them officially meeting. Because I wanted to make sure that he was going to, you know, just be a part of my life for the foreseeable future. We just met, you know, met him at a restaurant and just told him this is, you know, my boyfriend because at the time he was 13. So he was old enough to kind of know what a boyfriend and girlfriend was. And, you know, we just went to like a Mexican restaurant and just talked and I just stayed as quiet as possible and let them have a conversation. And it's funny because when people will ask Quincy about like, you know, previous boyfriends, I mean, there's only been like two. um, He's just like, oh, no, I I like Jeff. Jeff's much better than those other two. (laughs) So I I was happy that he thinks I made a good choice as well. Five years later, Letitia and Jeff are still together. It took them a while to say, I love you. But along the way, it just grew. And they knew they kept wanting more and a future. Now they're talking about moving in together in a way that's best for their relationship, but most of all, best for Quincy, who's 17. 
he's trying to figure out how he can kind of integrate into our lives as opposed to Quincy integrating into our relationship. So we're still, we're still figuring it out. So this summer when he goes off to college, we'll kind of regroup and figure out a game plan from there. Letitia's mom, Betty, who taught her so much about finding joy after loss, died in 2013. She got to spend 17 wonderful years with Thomas. Her lessons continue to be a gift for Letitia. What a blessing. I just keep thinking to have this incredible person in your life, you know, to be able to hold your hand and say, here's what you're going to do. And even after losing her, she's like a guide. I mean, she's still very much here. I still think about my dad every day. And I just think about how did she how did she get through that? And it's funny because even even in my mind right now, like even though I am a single mom, I have this weird thing where it's like I don't feel like I'm a single mom because I have so many people around me helping. And I think she had that, too. And I think that's one of the things I reflect on is that she had so many people around her when my dad died. And I had so many people around me that I literally, truly did not feel like a single mom. You know, we've talked to people who have lost partners and especially in those initial moments are like, well, that's it. Or or this sort of strange narrative that some people set that's like you only get one or you only get to, you know, that where they'll put these limits on themselves about the possibility of connecting with someone else. What would you tell them? I think definitely part of my life mantra is that you have to be open to meeting anybody. So it's like if you think in your mind that I can open myself up to the possibility of meeting someone, then it will happen. But if you feel like you can't, you just even have the thought of like, I just don't think it's going to happen. Like, there's no way that I'm going to have two great loves in my life. And it's just like, well, if you're thinking that, then it's not going to happen because you're putting out that kind of energy. If you can convey that openness, then that, that kind of invites someone else in. Another thing I've heard from people is this sort of like loyalty to who you've lost, right? Well, if I do find love again, does it say something about the love I had or does it minimize the importance of that relationship? Was that ever a conversation with you and your mom about, you know, especially with her having been with your dad for so long of just like, I must I must honor this relationship by locking myself in the house. Like that wasn't part of the narrative. No. And she always would say that my dad is like a a piece of her. Like he, he will always be obviously a part of her life. She always was just like, he's always going to be your dad. He's always going to be part of your life. He's always going to be part of my life. And me moving on to be with someone else doesn't mean I love your dad any less. Yeah. And it's the same thing, you know, I tell my son now and I was just like, you know, even though I'm with somebody else, I still loved your dad. I loved what we had. I loved the family that we had together. Thank you so much for telling your story. No problem. I hope this uh, touches somebody in a good way. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're also an advice column, so send your love and relationship questions to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. 
I'm like halfway through season two and there was a couple of your podcasts and I was just like, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of that. And then I listened to it and I was just like, oh my gosh, that happened to me. (laughs) You know, like there's always one nugget. I was just like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what she's talking about. And I'll be on my walk and I'm like, I know that happened to me. And people are looking at me and I was just like, you don't understand. (laughs) I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.